Right now, we have only two choices. Live in an aquarium somewhere for the rest of our lives or stay on Argo. I won't accept either one of them. Bridge to all decks. Welcome to our 101st episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I'm broadcasting from a submarine at the bottom of the ocean, Scott. Do you see a, a yellow, uh, you know, is there a yellow submarine in the area too? You know, if you want to cross the stream. Oh no, blue meanies. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Uh, uh, only on Enterprise Incidents can we dive into the ambergris element and also mention the Beatles. But before we get into everything with this animated series episode, I just want to cover some business that we usually save for the end of the show. But I want to start with the beginning Right here, and just mention that because this is our 100th episode, 101st episode of Enterprise Incidents, want to again thank you for everyone who's been listening, everyone who's been there since the beginning, and everyone who has found us along the way. And whether you have been there since day one or maybe day 100, please be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Maybe you've already done it, and for that, we thank you. If you've been meaning to do it and you just haven't had a chance or you've been meaning to do it at the end of the podcast, but then you just jumped into something else. Well, hit the pause button, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We will be very, very, very grateful. And Steve, if someone wanted to make a generous donation to support us, how would they go about doing that? Well, first of all, anyone who did that would probably be my new best friend. And second of all, if they really wanted to, in the show notes, whether you're on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, the very first thing you'll see after the description of the episode is a link to Spotify for podcasters where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And like Scott said, we very much appreciate all of your support. Well, with that being said, please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on your social media pages. So now that all that is out of the way, Steve Morris, what did you think of the ambergris element? You know, it's so funny. We had all these conversations in the original series where you kept saying that season two is where it really hit its stride in the original series. I feel like the animated series has hit its stride. I feel we've had a couple of good episodes in a row, and I think this one is really, really solid. You know what's funny is like when I think back to my my earlier memories of of when I'd seen this and because it had been a really, really long time, as as it's been with many episodes of the animated series, you know, what I when I think of the Ambergris Selman, I think, oh, that's the one where Kirk and Spock, uh, you know, they turn into fish, basically. They can only survive on the right. water. And my memory of it wasn't like it didn't stand out like it did for yesteryear or the time trap or the countercock incident. So that's why uh, going back to rewatch this for the first time in, you know, so long, like so many of these other animated episodes, I was so pleasantly surprised by the level of depth to be found here. There are so many elements of this episode that are very, very much true to Star Trek. I was really surprised. And I agree with you. I feel like the animated series is hitting its stride. A uh, great way to put it especially coming so so close to the time trap. It's the very next episode, and I kind of wish we had our guest for the time trap, Bob Klein, to talk about his storyboard designs for the Ambergris element because there's a lot going on here. I think it's one of the best 
episodes visually period of the of the series i think there's interesting shot selection there's interesting designs elements going on i bet i i don't know if you have access to the budgets like you did on the original series but my guess is they spent more money on this episode than than at least than the average well whatever they saved on the storyboard and the designs and the animation they certainly made Made up for it with those voiceovers. I got to tell you, <laughs> James Stewart voicing six characters, the most uh, of any episode of the animated series, second only to yesteryear where he voiced seven. Um, I will say one thing because I was th- I've been thinking about yesteryear because yesteryear is the episode of the animated series that people talk about the most. It's the one that has the biggest effect on canon. It's the one like people go, oh, I wish that had been a live action episode. I think the thing is, is that that's the episode that has true emotional content. Yeah. And I don't think some of these other episodes like Time Trap, like Amber Grease, that we've really enjoyed, I don't, they don't have emotional depth the way Yesteryear does. But in terms of adventure stories, I think these are really good. And I, so I, I think it does succeed in that area. But I, I don't think we're ever going to match the depth that happens in Yesteryear. Yeah, yeah, and that was like the second episode of the series. So, but the fact that we are this deep in, we are now into the thirteenth episode to be produced. It was production number two two zero zero one three. The air date for the Amber Grease Element was December first, nineteen seventy three, making it in effect the ninety second episode of Star Trek to be broadcast. What I loved and I completely forgot about until I rewatched it, Steve, was seeing the opening credits because, you know, I always watch them. I do not skip over them. And then seeing the title card for the Ambergris Element written by Margaret Armin. I literally sat forward on my chair and went, oh, Margaret Armin. Of course, not only did she write the Lorelei signal for the animated series, but she also wrote three episodes of the original series, The Gamesters of Triskelion. The Paradise Syndrome and the Cloud Minders, which Steve, I had kind of a little epiphany watching watching this one going. You know, there there is a little bit of a of a similarity to the Cloud Minders. Instead of going up, they go down. But we'll get into that. <laughs> so Margaret Armin uh, pitched the story to uh, Dorothy Fontana, who had first approached her to write for the animated series. And in terms of this idea, Margaret Armin said she thought it would be fun to do this. Dorothy Fontana later said, I understand some people feel the script is not as strong as the Laurel Eye signal, but both Gene Roddenberry and I were pretty satisfied with what Margaret Armin turned in, and we felt it made a good episode. Yes, it was largely underwater, which was something we could never have done in the original series. My question, Steve, is which episode do you think is better of the two that Margaret Armin wrote for the animated series, this or the Laurel Eye Signal? I think the Laurel Eye Signal is more important and has a more important moment, and this episode is better. That's I- Agree a hundred percent. I knew as soon as I asked you, I knew that that's what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I I think we loved seeing Ohura take over the Enterprise so much, and it was so cool. And there was so much in that episode that was sort of like, wait, what's going on? This is all kind of weird. This episode, <laughs> I didn't feel that way at all. I think I think this episode's much tighter. And and I also think this episode has a lot more going on 
in just 24 minutes uh, to the point where when I was watching it, you know, towards the end, I felt like I had to kind of like rewind it a little bit because there was a lot of information. Again, another episode that metaphorically has a lot in common with the, the, the some of the ideals that Star Trek stood for, but just it's a very grown up story and uh, one that is very, very mature for Saturday morning at 1030 a.m. So it aired on December 1st, 1973. We're getting towards the end of 1973. And here's some of the things that were going on in the world in the week before. On November 25th, the president of Greece, George Papadopoulos, was ousted in a military coup. On uh, that Sunday, driving was now banned in West Germany. This is multiple countries now that have ended driving one day a week because of the oil embargo. Uh, this ends up being one of the most important decisions made by the Congress on November 27th. They vote to confirm Gerald Ford as the 40th vice president of the United States after mm -hmm. the resignation of Spiro Agnew that we heard about a few weeks ago. Yep. Well, they've the Senate has already gone to Nixon and said, we think you should resign. So, a, you know, confirming a vice presidential choice, they really are, know that there's a damn good chance that they are confirming the next president of the United States, which, of course, they were. Uh, on November 28th, the EPA published a report confirming that lead from exhaust pipes of cars was, guess what, bad for us. <laughs> What's remarkable to me about it was how fast the transition went. They There, there was a loss passed soon after that all cars had to have catalytic converters and that they're going to run on unleaded gas in 1975. That's just two years later. That is really fast and a lot of pressure on the uh, auto industry. <laughs> this one's just kind of crazy. On November 29th, the world's highest flying bird was proven to be the Rupelli's griffin. Now, I knew nothing about the Rupelli's griffin. It's indigenous to Central Africa. But would you like to know the very scientific method they used to figure out that this bird could fly higher than any other bird? What was it? It was sucked into the jet engine of a plane flying at 37,900 feet. And somehow they identified the corpse and went, oh, I guess that bird can fly that high. Oh, my goodness. I, could, I didn't know birds could fly that high. That's crazy. Neither did I. That's absolutely crazy. And I just love like, whoops. <laughs> I guess we know science. Uh, yeah. Uh, would you like to get into the episode? Let's dive in, so to speak. <laughs> You know what's interesting, by the way, and I think it's unique to the animated series, is yes, on many episodes of the original series, they did start with a captain's log. We did get a start date. I think we do that on every single episode of the animated series. We start there, and I would like to ask you about this start date. Okay, this start date is 5499.9, and yes, you are correct. Excellent observation. Every episode, as far as I can tell, so far at least, has started with a captain's log. So... Uh, in, in terms of putting the adventures of the animated series in with line with where it would have fit in with the original series, that would have put this, like so many other episodes of the animated series we've done, Steve, the ambergris element is right in between for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky and is there in truth no beauty. We are orbiting the planet Argo. Argo was once a land planet, but its surface is now almost completely covered by water. The change was caused by violent seismic disturbances. They're really starting to strut their stuff in terms of the shot selection. Because right away we have this cool shot looking down from like the control room into the shuttle bay as we launch a shuttle. And then the, you know, the 
Doors open and the shuttle comes out and sweeps past camera in just a really cool shot. And yeah. I feel like this whole episode has a lot of shots like that. I, I agree with you. I, I, I absolutely noticed because, you know, you're so used to seeing the same stock shots that you and I talked about many, many times uh, to the point where it serves as a detriment to the series. But not in this case. Uh, there there is a lot of new stuff, so to speak, to look at, starting with not just one, but two new shuttlecrafts from the Enterprise. One of them is this aqua shuttle that can both fly in space and, uh, you know, go down uh, on the uh, wet surface of a planet. They call it a, a an aqua shuttle, but this one was NCC 17015A. And then there's the scouter gig, which was NCC 17016R. Both were designed, of course, by our friend Bob Klein, who said a lot of my ship's designs were based on what I knew about Star Trek. The Aqua Shuttle was a matter of what looked good. Once I satisfied what the Star Trek world was, then I just went with what looked cool. That was the thinking. I like the Aqua Shuttle a lot. I think it looks really cool. The moment that it landed on the water, I was like, oh, it's a new it's a new thing. I love the huge window we have on the inside. It just looked real. And then when it when it dove underwater, I had the moment. By the way, so my first Bond movie is The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, and the moment that the Lotus submerges, because we're the same age, was one of the coolest moments. And like, this is kind of like that. Like, oh, it's actually, it's not just a shuttle. It's a submarine. It's really cool. One of the other things we hear, by the way, is that part of why we're studying this strange new world, here we're studying another strange new world, uh, is because there's another planet that might experience similar seismic activity. And so they're trying to learn something from this planet that might help out this other planet where millions of people live. Um, so we're in our aqua shuttle. We're uh, looking around. We go down underwater and we see there are some tentacles that grab them and toss them. And there is a big creature which they shoot with their phasers. That it makes it the first shuttlecraft of any kind on the Enterprise that was actually equipped with weaponry. Unless you count electrifying the hull of the Galileo 7 and Galileo 7, but that's sort of a trick. But that is amazing that that is where you went. <laughs> so we're underwater. We want to examine this creature, and they say it kind of reminds them of a diluvian whale. Unfortunately, it recovers from that phaser fire way faster than we expected. It grabs them, shakes them around pretty good. Spock, prepare to fire phasers. Phasers do not respond, Captain. Nope, phasers don't work. (laughs) (laughs) They don't work, yes. They worked before, but not now. I kind of want Sulu to come. Hey, you know, I still got these old uh, revolvers in my collection. Maybe we should start using those instead, because phasers seem to be pretty undependable in the uh, animated series. Well, Sulu and Uhura are MIA from this episode, which may explain why point. you had more money for some good animation here. Um, and Kirk makes an emergency call up to the Enterprise. And man, that creature grabs our aqua shuttle in its teeth, tosses them against the rock. McCoy and a red guy end up in the water and we see Spock and Kirk unconscious in the wrecked aqua shuttle. This is um, a lot of excitement for this this episode so far. Well, and the next moment is really scary because we hear Mr. Scott give a log. Captain Kirk and First Officer Spock have been missing for almost five days. Yeah, five days. No trace of the Aqua Shuttle. And there's a a lot of what makes the animated series so good is that they've incorporated uh, time 
into it, especially the passage of time and also races against time. And we're going to have one pretty big race against time as as this episode develops. Absolutely. And we're now down on like a speedboat version of the shuttle. Does this thing have a name? Uh, yes, this is called a scatter gig. And there was actually a, a cut line from the script where Scotty made a remark about the scatter gig not being too sturdy. He didn't like it. That's kind of a strange name, but we're looking around, can't find them. And then finally, they find Kirk and Spock face down in the water. And I went having re- really no memory of this episode at all. Like, mm. what the hell happened? They dragged them out of the water. Their bodies are functioning. Metabolism, heart, everything but the lungs. Can't breathe, suffocating. It's at this moment that we notice that their fingers are now webbed. So just like we had a transformation in recent episodes where the Enterprise crew shrunk, now you have a metamorphosis, if you will, of Kirk and Spock into uh, they can't breathe air anymore. They can only live underwater. And that they have webbed hands, like you pointed out, and that's that's a pretty dramatic end to the first act. And this episode actually has four acts, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because there is a really weird fade to black. And I went, is this an act break or was this just that they held the fade to black unusually long? So did it actually have another commercial break? I I couldn't find anything saying that this had four acts because you know we've been sort of going on the assumption that when it fades to black like that that it's right. the end of an act but uh, i took it as the end of an act because it felt like the end of an act too it, it it definitely does and when we come back to the enterprise they are floating in a basically they're in an aquarium it seems weird to me that they're just in their uniforms in the water for this whole episode i don't know what choice we would have had but it just seems like yeah their clothes are probably kind of waterlogged and soaked you know what they should have done? If they're going to wear their uniforms, that's fine. But they should have been able. They should have taken their boots off to show that their feet were also webbed, allowing mm. them to swim fast. Because the whole idea of them wearing their uniforms and their boots underwater, and especially with all the swimming that they do, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> you know, if they had said something like, "Our algae-based uniforms are designed perfectly for swimming in the water." I think that would have been that would have been a nice touch too. I like see this is where I go this you know we talked a lot about how because of the lack of money because of the tight schedules there just was lots of little things that they didn't do that could have made episodes better and this is an episode where I feel like they did do a lot of those little things and one of them is they altered Kirk's voice when he's talking from inside the tank it's got reverb on it it sounds a little bit different Are you sure the mutation wasn't somehow accomplished naturally That's just a a little tiny thing that helps the episode just a little bit more. I completely agree. They definitely went the extra mile for this one. Um, and McCoy says there's something in their bloodstream that caused this change. They don't have any memory of it, but they can't quite figure out how to reverse it. It was infused into your body as a key structural point. It had to be done by injection. And they're deciding what they're going to do. And they're talking about maybe they need to go back into the ocean to discover who did this to them. And McCoy's against it. And I love this conversation here. Well, we can't do much underwater exploration without the aqua shuttle. Our equipment is too limited. We aren't limited. We can go wherever we want in that ocean. It's too risky, Jim. One thing that I found kind of interesting is how Kirk kind of sounds a little panicked when he says, Look at this place. A tank. I can't command a ship from inside an aquarium. 
I can't live in here. He sounds panicked, not only because of the transformation that's happened to him, but what kind of scares him most that we've seen in the original series, the thought of losing command. And like he says, he cannot command the Enterprise from this tank. In effect, he would lose command. I I wouldn't define it as panic. That's not how it read to me. But what it did read to me was it's Kirk like very clearly going, this is what has to happen. There is no choice. Like, I can't do this. I can't run the Enterprise from here. Therefore, I have to go take this big risk and get in the ocean and try to find a solution. Right now, we have only two choices. Live in an aquarium somewhere for the rest of our lives or stay on Argo. I won't accept either one of them. And I love that we asked Spock. What does your logic tell you? The captain states the case emotionally, of course, but correctly. I would be of little value to this ship if I'm confined to a tank in sickbay. And this is uh, actually where we bring uh, the second act to a close if we're going by the fates to black. (laughs) So now we cut to uh, them swimming. And I think the animation of them swimming is way better than the animation of them running that they use over and over again that I don't like. I agree with you. I mean, they use the animation of them swimming many, many times. But uh, when they show the shots of Kirk and Spock swimming and they're like, the point of view is, is on the side. It's actually taken from a story layout of an episode of Filmation's Aquaman. Oh, very yeah. cool. You know what? So that is why this episode looks better. Because I bet they were using a lot of materials from Aquaman. They'd Good. been doing an underwater show for a while, so they had experience with it. Like, I bet, and I wonder if the ruins that we're going to see later on, because I thought they looked really good. I wonder if they're borrowed from Aquaman as well. You know, this is when, remember we were watching Cat's Paw and Korob's outfit turned up on an episode of Gilligan's Island. Right. <laughs> That's what <Yep>. It's so funny thinking about uh, the world today and so, so little of that would you get away with today? You know, mm. like they, they're just, they, you know, these shows are so expensive. The new Star Trek shows are super expensive. Yes, they, they are. Yeah. But we see them swimming and we see some underwater people. We see, get our first glimpse of the Aquans. You know, maybe you're right, Steve. Maybe there was animation from a, an episode of Aquaman that was easily transferable to to an episode of Star Trek. If anyone is listening and it can actually uh, support our theory, please let us know. But uh, Kirk and Spock are referred to as air breathers. And of course, Kirk says, we come in peace. We're friends. Right. Very Star Trek. The other interesting thing, and, and and of course, this is a half hour show. So we don't, I don't think we go into these themes very much, but one of the interesting things that we find out is that the, people that turn them into water breathers are the young people. And so we have this thing that's come up before in Star Trek that we've talked about all the way back in Miri of the difference between the older generation and the younger generation. The younger generation wants to let go of some traditions and try new things. And the older generation saying, whoa, 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 don't do that. And that's what we have in this episode. That's what, and, and that is a running theme throughout the episode of the fact that it's written by a veteran of the original series Margaret Armin, and it's a, it's a theme that is very much true to Star Trek. I'm pointing out Miri is an, is an excellent example. And it's also, I mean, even though we're out of the 60s and into the early 70s, you know, that was still going on very, very much so, especially with, uh, you know, Vietnam kind of in its waning days. But then, you know, Watergate's going to pick up. 
what's happening. It's literally happening as we speak when this <laughs> is going on. Um, and the and the older uh, Aquans say, basically, stay away. We're not going to help you. And does Kirk and Spock decide? Do they decide to stay away? They do not. They see a big crevasse and they say, that's where we think we should go. Fascinating and beautiful. An undersea civilization capable of fantastic architecture. Medical triumphs unheard of in our galaxy. Now, what movie did you think of at this moment, Steve? Hmm. What movie did I think of at this moment? Well, now I'm thinking of Wakanda Forever when we go to find Namor, but I don't think that's what you were thinking of. Not what I was thinking of, but that's still very, very good. I'm watching this moment where Kirk and Spock come upon this like beautiful underwater city, and I thought of The Abyss. Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. The End of The Abyss. A net gets thrown over them. They are captured. And once again, we kind of find ourselves in essentially a courtroom. And, it, you know, just like we did in our last episode where they're going to be judged. And this is the Tribunal of the Aquans. So you're right. Not only did we find ourselves, uh, uh, you know, being judged in the time trap, we also found humanity uh, on trial in the Magics of Magus 2. You know, this has been a running theme throughout Star Trek, all the way into Next Generation in the beginning. Encounter Farpoint with Q, and that ran all the way, all the way through. Well, you know, Picard. So, humanity is always on trial. The trial never ends, as Q would say. So he- here's the other thing, I, and I don't know if this was what you were bringing up in terms of connections with the Cloudminders, but we also have a clear prejudice between surface dwellers. And the Aquans, which is like the people who live up in Stratus and the people down on the planet. And it's also generational because there's the young people, the revolutionaries who are on uh, the planet in Cloudminders. And there's the young woman who is the intellectual whose name I don't remember who has the flirtation with Spock. Like, And so the, some of those themes kind of seem to be translating over here. Absolutely. By the way, her name is Droxine. Droxine, <laughs> thank you. I never forget a body. Uh, but so – so, Steve, first of all, you have this episode is written by the writer of the Cloudminders, Margaret Armin. So maybe that was deliberate. And she said, oh, maybe I could take some of these themes that I explored in the Cloudminders, transfer it to an animated show. Instead of make it like in the clouds and on the surface, make it on the surface and underwater. But the in addition to what you pointed out, which was so right on point and you beat me to it, the other Sorry. thing that <laughs> the other thing that makes it uh Comparable to the cloud miners, Steve, is they – in the cloud miners, they needed the Xenite uh, to save another planet from a botanical oh, yeah. plague, okay? In this episode, what they are looking for is information from this planet, the seismic, seismic activity of this planet to help another planet. So once again, we're, we're trying to use our situation now to help a completely different planet out of a similar situation. So there are a lot of similarities between the Cloudminders and the Ambergris element. And what we hear is that there are these ancient records, and the ancient records basically say, don't trust air breathers. And the young people are saying, hey, maybe we should look at, give them a chance to defend themselves. Maybe things are not as they seem. This is classic older generation, younger generation. And I don't mean conservative in a political way today. I mean conservative in a classic way of not wanting to change versus pushing for change. That is definitely the dynamic that's going on here. And and also that, you know, how many times in some of Star Trek's very, very best episodes, have we seen a situation where we fear 
what looks different. We yep. are scared of what we do not understand. I mean, Devil in the Dark is obviously like the classic example. Even even Arena, you know, and of course Metamorphosis. I mean, these are these are common things that tie into this this effort of humanity striving for perfection, never getting there. Because even though it's not the humans who are doing this now, it's the Aquans on this planet. You know, they are fearing the uh, air breathers, and there is a a, a structure where. The younger generation is defying just the old scripture. They are like, why does it have to be this way? Let's move past all this. You know what's interesting is that I think in the original series in the mid-60s, the the there was the same tension we saw it in Miri, we saw it in uh this side of paradise, we saw it obviously in in our space hippies in the way of Eden. <laughs> <The waiting. laughs> but the basic stance of Star Trek was not that the older generation shouldn't talk to or even learn from the younger generation, but in the end, the older generation were the grown-ups who had to say, Hey, this hippy dippy stuff is not so cool. You gotta, you know, we gotta fight, we can't, you know, dance the loot, we have to march to the drum, you know, all that stuff. By the time we're here. I think that has shifted a little bit because the message here is we have to learn from the younger generation because it's Rila, I think, is the name of the character. She's the one who's saying, hey, you got to let them defend themselves. You got to listen to them. Maybe there are things we can learn. And that's the message of the show. You know, that's a really, really great point. That speech that Kirk gives at the end of uh, the side of paradise doesn't seem to be the uh, way of thinking with this one here. Yeah. Well, maybe some of his experiences, like we've mentioned in Devil in the Dark, in Arena, over the years of Star Trek, have made him start to look at things a little bit differently. Absolutely. What is it, Doctor? Census just gave us an update reading, Scotty. There's a sea quake due in that area. A bad one. Complete topography changes. How soon? Within four hours. When are Jim and Spock due to make contact? About the same time. But can you contact them sooner? We can try like blue blazes. So as if it wasn't enough... That you have a situation where Kirk and Spock are trying to reverse the transformation. They have now they're now they're under a time crunch. Now it is a yep. race against time. So they have four hours. And how often has that happened in in the very best of Star Trek, where they're already in a dire situation? And well, no, now we got to do this in two hours, or you know, the universe is going to explode. I mean, it's classic, you know, it, it is classic, classic storytelling. How many movies, James Bond, Superman, superhero stories, sci-fi stories, where there's the bomb is counting down to the last possible seconds and we have yep. to save the day. I mean, that is that is a basic thing. And I remember way back, it was Roddenberry in Naked Time that added the element of having to beam up the crew members to add extra pressure and to add ticking clocks. You know? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. So this has been from the very beginning of Star Trek. The other thing that's going on is as we're searching for Kirk and Spock is that some of the young people have spotted the surface dwellers and go to report that, which the older generation, the council, takes as evidence that they are obviously spies and can't be trusted. That's right. Do you still believe these creatures came in peace? We do not know what to believe. Take these spies to the surface boulders and leave them there. It is justice enough for our enemies. And so they put them in the nets and they're dragging them up. But the people taking them there are the young people who maybe aren't going to do to them exactly what the council wants them to do. Well, uh, and the fact that they just were going to leave them up on the surface and allow them to suffocate is pretty brutal. It is really brutal. 
Um, I, I like, by the way, that Scotty is in the water and he's got like his force field thing that's allowing him to swim around underwater. I think that's pretty cool. That's the force field that we saw in Beyond the Farthest Star, the first uh, episode of the animated series. And the younger Aquans find Scotty and bring them over to Kirk and Spock. And Scotty tells them that this quake is coming that's basically going to destroy the whole area, including the Aquan city. In two hours now. There are legends of such a happening. It destroyed the ancient knowledge and caused the great surface places to sink into the sea. And then because of these mutations and because the surface, there was war with the surface, that's how these traditions of not trusting the air breathers started. And also because it happened over generations and centuries, it became natural for them to just live under the water. Um, and Kirk says, maybe in these old ruins that you're talking about, we can find the information to change us back. It's important, Rilla, not just for us. The population of another planet is threatened by surface changes too. Argo's ancient knowledge can help save them. And this is where the real hero, I think, of is Rila, who agrees to go against what her society thinks is right in order to help Kirk find uh, what they're looking for. And we swim down to these uh, ruins. And I think all of this stuff looks really good. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. It's interesting visually. It's scary as we swim through all these currents. We find what is totally bizarre is medical symbols that look like, you know, the earth medicine symbol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really weird choice because why would it look like that? But <laughs> they think that this might be the key to the survival of the race. They grab the bottles. They swim out, and who are we running into but that huge sea creature that we met in Act 1? And that is the end of Act 2. And that uh, red creature is called the Argo Sir Snake. The Sir Snake. Act 3, this is what I wrote down. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, <laughs> yeah, yeah, swimming. Yeah. <laughs> Finding Nemo. And they're swimming, and they're being chased by the snake through the creatures. It's There's like earthquakes and stuff falls on the snake. I think all of this is visually pretty exciting. Yep. Uh, we get back to the Enterprise. McCoy is looking at the scrolls and thinks that this is, in fact, the answer. The problem is we need some venom from that big snake, and that's the only way to create the antitoxin necessary to reverse this mutation. Don't you think there is a lot going on in this episode? Yeah, totally. Well, and unlike things like, you know, the big rock creature and mud, Mud's passion, which I don't think worked very well, I yeah. think this Sir Snake does work pretty well as a yeah, big I monster that we have to deal with. Well, in particular, that we have to, it's not just that we have to escape him or defeat the snake, but we actually have to get venom out of his fangs. That's pretty neat. Yep, I agree. And we have multiple things depending upon this because they need the, the venom in order to turn them back. That's important. There's information in these ruins that will help the Aquans. And there's information here that's going to help this other planet that's facing all these earthquakes, too. So there's a lot of things at stake here. But the ordainment state clearly that capturing Sir Snakes is forbidden. And then one of the older guys says, Ordainments are useless in times of turbulence. Only knowledge will help us. That is a clear rejection of sticking to the story you've told yourself your whole it's like no we have to we have to be able to change in order to survive that's pretty heavy i mean it's like it's not just heavy by 1973 standards like that's something that's like totally relevant for any time any generation and this is coming from a saturday morning animated series this certainly the ambergris element would have been impossible to film as a live action episode in 1973, 
unless maybe James Cameron directed it. Right. But by today's standards in 2023, I think this is this is great stuff. This is great Star Trek. 50 years later, this episode holds up so well because there is so much more than just, you know, the adventure and excitement of an animated show going on here. And it goes to classic Star Trek themes of like, no, you have to question things. You can't just accept the reality you're presented with, even if your brain is really locked into it. Just like Devil in the Dark, like Metamorphosis, like Errand of Mercy, all like the the battling planets in A Taste of Armageddon, you have to be able to change, you know? Right. Um, and in this case, the changes decide to go after the snake and they capture it with a net and there goes captain kirk milking some venom out of the big snake fangs (laughs) which unfortunately gets free and they don't get to get all of the venom that they really wanted to get we're back on the enterprise and we hear that basically because they didn't get that much venom it's been really hard to figure out exactly what the dosage is but we're gonna give kirk a shot anyway and it's he he gets his first shot he turns kind of orange his pulse starts to fade. And then there's this crazy moment after he gets his last shot where he starts to get scales and grows a fin for a moment. He's turned into a full fish. You know, I forgot so much about this episode because it had been so long. So when I was watching it and he starts to turn into a an amphibian there, I just went, oh, my God. Like, I, I yeah. was concerned. And I'm like, this thing's supposed to be wrapping up any minute. And he's like, doesn't look like he's being cured here. Well, unfortunately, we are going to be able to wrap up in any minute because the (laughs) fin goes away. The scales go away. Now he has trouble breathing because he's underwater. We get him out of the tank, ask him how he feels. He says, a little dizzy, otherwise normal. Well, better get into some dry clothes. I I wouldn't want you to catch cold. Your turn, Spock. And so that's worked. We turned them back. And now we have on the bridge of the Enterprise, some of the Aquans now wearing water helmets essentially yeah and they're just blown away by what they're seeing and the thing that i wrote down here was prime directive much (laughs) i was just going to ask you about that i don't know do they do they violate so first of all so i think in 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 my version of the prime directive the i can interfere with your society if you're all going to be wiped out by terrible earthquakes i think that's totally fine i think they do what they have to do but I actually think bringing them up to the bridge of the Enterprise totally violates the Prime Directive. They didn't need to do to do that, right? right to right. show them a spaceship, you know. They they. But I also think the animated series didn't really care <laughs> at this point, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. So, and then what we hear is that basically they're going to fire their phasers into the planet to essentially, it sounds like, move the epicenter of the earthquake away from an inhabited area. Exactly. Yeah, and that is. Uh, what they do. And then it, it, is it your impression that the water level is kind of gone down, revealing some of the old cities that had been covered by water? Is that what's happening at the Correct. end of the episode? My, my impression was after after this cataclysm that happened, the, the water levels went down, revealing uh, these cities that had been submerged for, for centuries yeah. and centuries. Uh, and now the ancient cities are resurfacing, the ancient cities with information. And so they, A, thank the Enterprise, B, say we're going to help you with, you know, sharing some of this ancient information with you. And then the other thing that sounds like hap- is happening is it sounds like the young people are kind of intrigued with the idea of living on the surface rather than underwater. The light is warm and the air is soft. 
I shall be glad when the surface places can be inhabited. And then what they say, which I really like, is they say, Don't lose contact with each other, like your ancestors. We will pass ordainments to forbid it. Which is a weird ending, I think, when we had to let go of our old ordainments that were getting in our way. And now they go, okay, well, in order to keep together, we're going to have some new ordainments that forbid this. I mean, but I do think having a rule of like, hey, just because they move to the surface doesn't mean that they're our enemy, I think is probably a pretty good rule. And you also have a situation very much like cloud miners, where instead of the people on Stratus finally saying, you know, maybe we should check out the surface, you have the people under the water saying, you know what, maybe we should check out the surface. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so so one is going down and the other is coming up. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the main theme of don't get locked into your old perceptions about things and be willing to change, I think is a pretty good Star Trek theme. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the beauty of of doing these deep dives into the animated series, Steve, is because unlike the original series where I've seen them so many times, it's not even funny. You know, there is an episode like the Ambergris Element where I, 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 it's been so long since I saw it. I had this one image, you know, that Kirk and Spock turned into fish, basically. And there's a really, really solid Star Trek story here with a lot of, uh, a lot to, to be inspired by. And I think that, that definitely this one is just as good as uh, the time trap in terms of being like, that was a really good episode. I agree. I do have one objection to the episode, which is, why is it called the ambergris element? Well, because they made that comment about- uh, All they do is they say it's like ambergris, but they don't say anything about what ambergris is. You know, like ambergris is actually, do you know anything about it? No, I don't. (laughs) It's totally interesting. It's, um, It's this particular material produced only by sperm whales that is- it's literally, I think I was looking, it's worth like $10,000 a pound. This is stuff was hunted. This is why sperm whales were hunted almost to extinction. And this is this material that was used. It's like an oil with a scent. And so it's used for like perfumes and things like that. And it uh. became super, super valuable in the ninth, in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, like, like, like work that's weighed in gold kind of stuff. And it's like, why pick this weird thing that I would say most people probably know nothing about as your title that has nothing to do with anything in this episode and then not explain it, you know, like at the yeah. very least they should have explained what it was or don't use it as a title. Like it's, a, it's just a bizarre choice. You the, know? The, not that it was really a problem for me, but while I was watching this rewatching, however you want to call it, cause it had been so long when there was definitely a couple of times where I felt like I had to pause it and rewind it a little bit because there is so much information being given. There's Me so too. much so much exposition going on. I, I literally went, wait a minute, and I stopped it and I rewound it. I'm like, oh, okay. But you're totally right about the ambergris element of the ambergris element not being explained that even like a grown-up like myself uh, just didn't know what that was, but just – Hearing that it had something to do with whales on Earth was enough for me. Of course, we're going to see a whole lot of whales on Earth, uh, or at least, yeah. uh, you know, in Star Trek for the voyage home. With George and Gracie. Um, but yes, I agree with you. I totally like this episode. I mean, there was really genuinely part of me that was really dreading the animated series. And there were some episodes early on where my dread 
felt really justified. And yeah. now I'm feeling pretty good. Like I love the last several episodes, you know, I've enjoyed a lot. And so I feel pretty good about this at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. I'm very, very excited about what's to come. So that's what we think of the ambergris element. We said this all at the top of the episode, but I'm just going to repeat it. You can visit us on our Facebook page. You can follow us at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. If you'd like to read a review on Apple Podcasts, we would love to hear it. We actually read all those reviews, and it's always fun hearing from you there. If you want to support the show, you can do it right on that Spotify link on the show notes, and you can support us for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. If you want to Reach me, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And since we are underwater, discovering new things and letting go of old ideas, I think you should also check out my Great White Shark documentary, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear. It's available. I think it's a dollar ninety nine to rent on Amazon Prime right now. So you should definitely rent it. I am really proud of that documentary, and it is so influenced by Star Trek because the whole theme of the documentary is that. We looked at this animal through the bars of a cage, and it's that way of looking at it that's caused us to demonize and fear it. And when we swim out from outside the cage, suddenly we can experience it in a whole new way. And you will see more people riding the fin of a great white shark in Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear than you've ever seen in any other documentary. I guarantee it. Well, uh, my question, Steve, is do you have any episodes of the cinephiles that are submerged, like maybe the Abyss or or Avatar? Uh, we have not done the Abyss or Avatar, but we have done The Hunt for Red October. And I would love to do my other favorite submarine movie, which is Crimson Tide someday, but we haven't done it yet. I like that one a lot. I love Crimson Tide. That is an amazing movie. Well, make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And, you know, like, like I said, at the top of the show, please be sure to uh, give us a review and anything you could do so, to support us at Enterprise Incidents would be most appreciated. And make sure you join us for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, because I think these good episodes are going to keep on coming. The next episode is The Slaver Weapon. That's next on Enterprise Incidents. Do join us. And until then, you know the drill. Keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.